Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The following is a special presentation in honor of all the historic houses and taverns opening up in the city and across the country. This week, the museum at the historic Francis Tavern finally reopens. And so we're representing a show that was originally recorded in 2011. And you can tell it's 2011 because we make a joke about Julie Taymor's Spider-Man musical. Now, this week just happens to be Tavern Week, and a few other historic taverns across the country are joining Francis in this celebration. Although, around these parts, it's always Tavern Week. And stay tuned until the end of the show, where I'll have brand new history nuggets to share with you. So please enjoy the show. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Good day to you, Tom. Good day to everybody. Good day to you, Greg. And we are going to go back to the Revolutionary War era, a place that we haven't been for a little while. We're going to spend a lot of time there as we visit everybody's favorite colonial era (laughs) tavern. I think that's accurate, Greg. I think it is all of our favorite colonial era bars. At least in New York City. And that would be the Tavern owned by one Samuel Francis. This is Francis Tavern. I have to say, Greg, I have the impression just from the outset that this could be our most patriotic podcast ever. It's clearly a principal stop on any tour of Revolutionary War sites throughout America. Right, because Francis Tavern is not just a bar. It's been an integral part of... Well, the city's history and also the nation's history. And we're going to talk about what it means to be a tavern around the colonial era. It's very different than anything today. Like, I know that I've been to more than a few taverns in my life, Mm. Tom. The things that happen in this show, this extremely action-packed show full of intrigue and mystery, those type of things don't go on in the taverns that you see around the corner. So we're going to discuss those differences, recount many of the events that happen here. And tell the story of one of the city's most successful and earliest preservation efforts. And I will also mention a very popular legend of the revolutionary era, and I will debunk that legend. That's an exclusive here on the Bowery Boys. Well, other people have done it, but it's. Uh, <laughs> I'm very excited to debunk this the said legend. So, so pull up a chair as we raise a toast to France's Tavern.
Okay, Greg. Well, before we indulge ourselves in the fabulous history of Francis Tavern, perhaps you can situate us. Sure thing. Francis Tavern is located at fifty-four Pearl Street. That's at Pearl and Broad Street, and it's actually nested among many really old buildings from the from the early nineteenth century. Yep. And for for our listeners who aren't familiar with Lower Manhattan, we're really talking about way down toward the tip, very near the Staten Island Ferry Terminal. Just a couple blocks up, correct. Now, Francis happens to also be very close to a, a little quaint, beautiful area called Stone Street, a nice collection of old buildings and restaurants and taverns today. Some claim that Francis Tavern is the oldest building in Manhattan. I've seen that. It's is a, it? It's a controversial Is this what you're statement. debunking? Well, this, I will debunk this, but it's not my only debunking. <laughs> um, and, uh, it's a controversial statement. I'd say it's a little bit of a stretch because there have been so many reworkings and reconstructions constructions and renovations oh. here over the years. We can say that it represents one of the oldest buildings that has continually survived in that place. You just have to sort of do it a little dense of words. But it's not the city's oldest bar because there was a period in which it wasn't serving drinks and functioning as a bar. Now, Tom, if you were standing in the bar today, and for some reason you had like a time machine and that you could surround yourself in in sure, some fashion, yeah. and you were saying, take me back to this very spot 350 years ago, to that exact spot that you were standing. Sure enough, you would go back in time to 1661, and then you would plunge into the water ah, right there. I hate it when that happens in my time machine. Because Pearl Street here, yes. because that Pearl Street actually was the road that used to hug the shore of the East River here, uh, here in Manhattan. During the first years of British occupation, right when they came into to Manhattan for the first time, this was called River Road and later would be called Dock Street for all the docks that would be situated right off of Pearl Street here. Now, at this time, New York is still a very soggy backwater. It, this is immediately after the Dutch era. City leaders wanted to expand the city and um, you know, build proper civic structures. One of the ways in which they raised money was they sold some of the water rights right mm -hmm. off the coast. They sold it to people so they could fill in with their own landfill. And essentially, that's why Manhattan is much wider today than it used to be. So the city's expanding straight out into the water. This particular spot where Francis Tavern is today, this area was bought by a man named Stephanus Van Cortland. You know, the Van Cortland family, one of the great merchants of early New York history, of course, was namesake of the big park sure. in the Bronx. In 1700, his daughter, Anne, married a gentleman of French extraction, a man by the name of Etienne Delancey. He would anglicize his name to be Stephen Delancey. This is another important name. I'm just bringing up all it's these. Uh, name, these are yeah. the cream of the merchant class of New York City. And names that we cross all the time. Literally, crossing Delancey, Literally, yes. daily for me. Now, this was a wedding present, this little area of land. A uh, very expensive present because, of course, with real estate, especially if you're going to create real estate out of nothing. In 1719, a house was built here for the very first time. So, the, so Francis Tavern traces back to this very original structure, 1719. So this was the Delancey's original house? They never lived here, actually. Or actually, we don't really know for sure if they really made it a home. They made it a rental house, essentially. 
It was a series of rooms with most notably a very long room on the second floor, which, of course, is called The Long Room. We'll be visiting this room many times during this podcast. So they was a rental property for many, many years, and many of the rooms were rented to various businesses and things like that. Um, one of the most intriguing businesses that came through here in 1738 to 1740, The Long Room was rented out by a man named Henry Holt. Now, this was an English actor, very well-known stage actor and dancer. He came to New York not only to be a performer, but to also teach dance. He, in fact, may be the one of New York's very first dance instructors. Being a British colony, British society, balls and proper dance styles, you know, this was popular for the day and um, what you did at night and how you showed your class. Absolutely. And the city was growing too, becoming wealthier and perhaps taking on new refined hobbies and ways to spend the evening. Right. Refined tastes. Now, Holt, by the way, is credited with actually bringing the first prototype of what would become ballet to the United States. On February of 1739, Henry Holt had a performance here at what would become Francis Tavern. I don't know if it was a, quote, ballet, but the (laughs) name of the show, which Holt apparently performed in, was called, quote, The New Pantomime Experiment in Grotesque Characters, called The Adventures of Harlequin and Scaramouche, or The Spaniard Tricked. Ugh. That was the full title that was performed Quite here. Quite a title. That made its debut. It has not, as far as I know, been recently revived. Now, <laughs> But, oh, if we could get our hands on a script. I mean, what would Julie Taymor do with that show, you know? <laughs> Turn off the lights. <laughs> now, by 1750, of course, the neighborhood was changing really rapidly by this time. New York was really becoming um, a huge port city and very important to the British. Stephen Delancey actually had a son by the name of Oliver. And Oliver opened a mercantile shipping business here with a business partner. It was called Delancey Robinson and Company. And they specialized in, quote, European and East Indian goods, including shoes and shirts, unquote. They would not be long for the area. They would close up their shop. And in 1762, the building was actually sold to an aspiring tavern owner, which I believe you know as Mr. Samuel Francis. And actually, Greg, he already owned a tavern at this point. Oh. So he wasn't even aspiring. He was an inspired. Uh, inspired. Okay. An inspired tavern owner, a fashionable man, a bon vivant. He was elegant. He had great taste in food and wine. He sounds like a great person to spend the evening with. He was born in Jamaica uh, to parents of African and French descent. Now, we'll get into that in a second. Mm-hmm. You'll notice that I didn't give you a date of his birth. And it's because it's a little bit tricky doing the research here. I saw two different dates, 1722 and 1734. That's typical of the records of the day at this particular time. Though a 12-year difference is kind of extreme. (laughs) He's thought to have immigrated to the U.S. in 1741 uh, when he was either 19 years old or seven. I guess he could lie about his age a lot more easier than a lot of other people could (laughs) in this situation. But I mean, seven... (laughs) Or 19? Yes. That's quite a lot of bon vivanting. <laughs> Regardless, in 1757, he married Elizabeth Daly at Trinity Church. That we do know. And between 1759 and 1784, they had seven children, three of whom died before the age of 10. As I mentioned, he already owned another tavern because in 1759, which is the same year that Oliver Delancey and his, right. and, and his business company partners, right. bought the building back, In that same year, 
Samuel Francis owned and operated the Mason's Arms restaurant, which was further up on Broadway near today's City Hall. You mentioned it was a restaurant, Mason Arms restaurant. I'm sorry. That's a very good point. I guess it was a tavern. Our idea of a restaurant would not really develop until, what, the 19th century? Right, right. So this is a tavern, and we'll get into those distinctions in just a second. Okay. But in 1762, it was Samuel Francis who purchased Delancey's mansion. Interestingly, Greg, did you know that just three years later, he left the tavern to establish Vauxhall Gardens, which sounds like it was quite a place. I mean, it was basically a wax museum. Right. Now, this is an early version. There was actually, there have actually been throughout New York's history several places called Vauxhall Gardens, and it was sort of the early prototypical park-slash-museum type thing. And if there was a Vauxhall Gardens where Astor Place is, right. um, that would happen in later 19th century, that would be near Niblo's Garden. So they're very, same kind of thing, sort of bizarre wax figures in historical tableau. Exactly. 70 figures sort of depicting historical scenes. Sounds amazing. And he served snacks. Snacks and wax. And then in 1770, he came back to, to his tavern at 54 Pearl Street, mm-hmm. but he gave it a new name. Now, originally, his tavern had been called the Queen's Head Tavern, which was named for the Queen Charlotte of England, which was what you did. I mean, England was in control. It's a British colony. I mean, a lot of places were named King's Head and Queen's Head. That's a common name for taverns and shops. But when he came back in 1770, already perhaps reflecting some patriotic murmurings that were happening in the colony, he gave his tavern a new name, Francis Tavern, which had a much more French-sounding name. And frankly, it was probably already called that by people who knew him because he was, of course, gaining a reputation himself. Well, speaking of knowing him, Greg, there are some questions about his racial identity. Indeed, he was known and is still known in some circles as, quote, Black Sam. But this is very confusing. Some have embraced him as one of the first and earliest African-American patriots. Right. So there are questions about whether or not he was black or he was white or if he just had a, quote, dark complexion. In fact, in the 1790 census that was taken, he was listed as white, but he was also given the last name Francis not Francis. He was also listed as the head of household with a wife, uh, four kids, and one slave. One theory is that there was perhaps misunderstanding by the person who was taking the census. Maybe they misidentified somebody who was just working for him as a slave. Also confusing this manner is, of course, there's a portrait of Samuel that is clearly in a a Caucasian palette. Right. But, you know, portraits of that day wouldn't have been accurate depictions anyway. So it's difficult. It really is difficult to know. His physical appearance has been described as tan with curly hair, but he was often also wearing a powdered wig. I, I mean, I like that it's truly one of history's great early revolutionary era mysteries. What is not a mystery was that this young city loved its bars. In 1782, for example, there were 22,000 residents and 400 taverns, which means that there was one tavern for every 55 residents. Like, these taverns didn't just serve liquor, so no. they, you know, I guess they could subsist on other things. Well, they, they functioned as a sort of town square, you know, where you f- could find your neighbors, you could exchange information, and other things, including some civil things, were being done. I mean, of course, you would drink and eat, and they certainly did at Francis Tavern, because Francis was a real connoisseur of wines, he was a great chef, 
And when you even visit today the the tavern, you can see some bills from from great feasts that were mm-hmm. thrown there, which itemize out, you know, the different meals and the drinks and the the casks of wine and such. And also, I loved to see all the broken dishes because they were tallying up <laughs> every single wine glass. And I mean, I don't know really what they were doing during these <laughs> meals, but they were breaking a lot of dishes. Well, if you think of it this way, they were drinking more than, you know, than, than we people do, do today. But they were also discussing more, you know, political and personal and civic manners in this place. I mean, let's not forget that the Dutch City Hall was also a tavern back in New Amsterdam. The general utility of these buildings has always been a shifting thing throughout the years. So perhaps they were all just getting really upset at each other because they were actually, you know... They were doing things of actual import, and so right. smashing a bunch of dishes and glasses. Yeah, because because they weren't just being charged for broken glasses, right? It was also plates and decanters and such. I mean, they were they were really they were throwing things. <laughs> it was right. a party. It was a party. Now, in these taverns, you could also play cards and other games until the wee hours. They had special rooms for groups, so gentlemen's clubs would meet, say, every week for dinner and their conversation. The New York Society Library met. The Friendly Brothers of St. Patrick met there, among other clubs. Every Saturday night, a club, um, there would be a social club that would include the likes of those like Governor Morris, right, John Jay, for instance. And and then they'd also have performances. So there were traveling actors and magicians and acrobats who would pass through town and play the different taverns. Lively at all times of the day and night. Speaking of the night, there were also people trying to sleep there. So there were guest rooms upstairs. <laughs> Likely these people were passing the evenings, late into the evenings, with, with the residents, um, eating and drinking and making merry. And smashing plates. <laughs> and throwing decanters. <laughs> So, obviously, a lot was happening in these taverns. Some were more successful than others. This one had a great location, you know, right next to the ports. It was sort of in a a trading area. You can imagine with all the ships coming in, this was a great spot to be. And keep in mind also the the rise of the, quote, coffee house, which was not that far from here either, which is also a multi-purpose building that served coffee primarily instead of liquor. But filled all these other services as well. Right. On top of all of this, we're talking the 1770s now, a little treacherous, rather breathtaking time in history. Discontent is brewing among all of the native New Yorkers here who are angry at the British government for not giving them any kind of representation. Rebellion and revolution were brewing in some of these taverns, not to use a mm. pun, it would be a very popular meeting place. I mean, just imagine like late night meetings by candlelight just in the dark corner, you know, four or five men hunched over with just stern looks on their faces, mm. discussing plans, hearing tales of rebellions, maybe like rebellion up in Boston, for instance. Soon some of these men organized because of this discontent, and they call themselves the Son of Liberty. They would, of course, be famous, and we've mentioned them in prior podcasts before, uh, for grousing against the British and, in fact, hoisting up that liberty pole that would be in the city commons area. Not very far away. Yeah, with the, which would be City Hall Park today, which would be sort of like the centerpiece of their rebellion. In December 1773 was the Boston Tea Party. Now, New Yorkers were kind of waiting for their own tea party because tea was coming into their harbor as well. Well, the problem was is that the ships 
coming to New York got caught in bad weather. So it took a couple months for them to get there. So I hope they weren't waiting by the actual docks waiting for this to happen because it was quite cold out at that time. Revolutions before Twitter. Exactly. You can't Facebook a revolution when the boats are late. Now, there were two ships and one did arrive, but it quickly turned around as they had heard of all this disruption. The other one did come into the harbor. Its captain was dragged out of the boat and pulled in to France's tavern, believe it or not, and was forced to apologize. And meanwhile, some of the citizens themselves did jump on board this ship and dumped that tea over. People don't know about the New York tea board. While he was apologizing in France's tavern? Yes. Yes, they were mad. And then plus they had all those months they were just letting it simmer, you know? Um, There's nothing nothing worse than simmering tea. (laughs) Now, of course, Samuel was on the side of the Patriots. For instance, in August of 1776, John Adams himself and the entire Massachusetts delegation for the first Continental Congress dined here. With war coming, when George Washington was in town, he frequently dined here with Francis. In fact, he is sometimes known as George Washington's cook. I mean, they were certainly very good friends. The tavern even saw a, some of the very first damage in New York from a, a certain British altercation. The following year, in August of 23rd, 1775, a British vessel was actually stalking outside in the New York Harbor because things were getting super tense. You just didn't know when you were living in New York if war was going to break out at any moment. Some of the members of the Sons of Liberty, this clandestine group, including some King's College students and also including a very young man by the name of Alexander Hamilton, Mm -hmm. they snuck down to the battery at the very, very tip of the island. That's where they kept a lot of ammunitions. And so the the Sons of Liberty, they stole some of the ammunition. They stole a cannon. They dragged it up to up Broadway because they thought that the British might land and steal it basically because they didn't really have that many defenses that they could protect themselves from they dragged it up Broadway they dragged it up to the commons and then they just they sat it underneath that very liberty pole which by the way is a long way to drag a cannon yeah i mean it's a pretty heavy thing well, they uh, were they were college kids yeah of course they were brawny so they shot the cannon back out at this ship which was called the Asia, and it was floating around in the the East River. The Asia shot back, and I read no evidence of whether this was a mistake or whether they intended to do it. Either way, it made their point. The Asia shot back. One of its cannonballs sailed through the roof of Francis Tavern, shattering it. Everyone inside ran out into the streets. People panicked. This was one of the first attacks on New York, and people started moving out because of this event. Like They started moving out of the city in general. Um, within the next year, of course, everyone would flee. Eventually, the British ran the Continental Army out of Manhattan entirely in the fall of 1776. It was at this time that the British occupied New York fully, and the Revolutionary War had just started. Things were not looking very good for, for Washington and the Continental Army. Francis himself left town, fled with his family to Elizabeth, New Jersey. Did you know that Delaware has endless discoveries? The first state invites you to explore miles of beaches and boardwalks, dozens of unique breweries, award-winning restaurants, some of the country's best state parks, beautiful garden estates, and even tax-free shopping. There's plenty of fun for the entire family and more. Find trip ideas and all the info you need to plan your Delaware discoveries at visitdelaware.com.
Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So we're in September of 1776. Right. Now, the tavern is still there. In fact, it's amazing that it's still there because the, the huge blaze, the fire of 1776 right. that started at the Fighting Cocks Tavern, which was only two or three blocks away, it, because the flames sort of went westward, it, Francis Tavern somehow managed to avoid the blaze entirely. However, Francis would not escape the British because of his Washington connections and his fine reputation as a cook. Well, the British kidnapped him from New Jersey, brought him back, and he was forced to cook for British officers. He also made meals for some of the American prisoners that were being held in New York at the time. This benefited the British, of course, to have Washington's cook here. It was a little badge of honor. Dig. But what they may or may not have suspected, as Francis was serving these meals, whatever, he was listening in. These were the enemy. You know, he was getting little bits of information. And so he would pass these messages on through George Washington's spy circuit that he had through New York at this time. I do have to mention that there is a very famous legend that is associated with, uh, with Francis, but not Samuel Francis, but with his daughter. His daughter? Which daughter? His daughter, Phoebe. Now, before you check your notes, yeah. listen, to wh- listen to what I have to say, okay? okay? Because this is, I call this, the conspiracy of the poison peas. Now, as the story goes, Samuel had a very elegant, comely daughter by the name of Phoebe Francis. Phoebe served for a very short time for Washington as a temporary housekeeper. I'm not sure for if it was just while Washington was in New York, if this was for a longer period of okay. time. Um, now, Washington had a bodyguard. His name was Thomas Hickey. He arrived to Washington. He claimed to be a British deserter and, you know, I guess charmed enough people that he eventually became one of Washington's bodyguards. Now, depending on what version of this story you've heard, Thomas Hickey... And Phoebe, they became lovers. 
at this time and be- develops apparently some kind of a close connection enough that Hickey actually spilled the beans a little bit here to Phoebe and revealed that there was going to be an assassination attempt on George Washington, that his plate of peas that were being prepared for him were laced with poison and that they were going to be served to George Washington. Well, as legend goes, Phoebe found out about this. We don't know if Phoebe told Washington directly or if she told her father, who then told Washington, but he apparently threw the peas out the window. The peas were eaten by birds who all died. Uh, Thomas Hickey was then hanged for treason. And so, you know, Phoebe is considered an early heroine of the war effort here. Wow. And wait, when when did Phoebe save the day? This was during, well, not during the war, because... Allegedly, it was right before the war. It was r- like when Washington was still in New York and the Continental Army was still stationed oh, there were just here. tensions and there were... Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, there was... The, the Continental Army had gathered in New York, but the, the you know, the British hadn't come and and ran them out. Here's a couple problems with this story, because this is a very famous legend. I mean, I hate to take down this story, because you see it a lot, I mean, especially in, like, just general common folk stories about the Revolutionary War, and all these kind of stories, especially because it involves a young lady. It has a certain charm to the story. But there's a couple problems with that. First of all, Samuel didn't have a daughter named Phoebe. He had a daughter named Elizabeth, Oh, that's now, true. Now, he had a daughter named Elizabeth, and so a lot of um, sort of revisionist historians are like, well, Phoebe was her nickname, clearly. The second problem with that story is, had it actually been Elizabeth Francis, she would have been, at, in 1776, between 10 to 12 years old. So, I guess, by stretch of imagination, George Washington might have had a 10-year-old housekeeper, but I very doubt that she was having a relationship with a conspiratorial British deserter who was operating as his bodyguard. So Hmm. I have to say, it's a very good story, but has very little historical basis. Regardless, Greg, I'm going with it. I completely believe that story. All right, take it. And (laughs) Phoebe deserves her own show. (laughs) And one day we we may give that to her. Now let's flash forward to after the war, because as we know, thankfully the Continental Army won. And the British had to get the heck out of New York. So by November of 1783, the remainder of the British forces and British officers were all in New York. They were all just going to get get on ships and leave forever. Evacuate. Exactly. But part of the ceremony of them leaving, of course, involves George Washington and the Continental Army arriving with great pomp and circumstance. Well, yes, they did arrive. But, Greg, wasn't it actually the British soldiers who were sort of well-dressed in their nice uniforms who were being replaced immediately by the ill-clad, sort of exhausted American troops who they, yes, heroically they, did replace them on the street? They were the, Their victory was sort of worn in their ramshackle, beaten-up outfit. That is the uniform of success. Now, George Washington paraded with his troops from the Bull's Head Tavern on the Bowery to Cape's Tavern at Broadway and Wall Street. And that very night, General George Clinton threw a dinner at Francis Tavern on Evacuation Day, November 25th, 1783. Now, that would be General George Clinton, who would become later, of course, the governor of New York and, of course, uncle to dear friend DeWitt Clinton. So that was November 25th, 1783. Just nine days later, December 4th, 1783, Washington decided to throw a dinner 
He invited his officers to France's tavern to say farewell before, before he headed into retirement, and he had planned to move off to Virginia and just take it easy. He thought his professional career was over by this time. So that morning, Washington alerted his officers that he wished to part from Mount Vernon that very same day. So he invited them to France's tavern to join him for lunch at noon up in the long room, which if you go today, when you walk in, you go up the stairs and it's right there in front of you. It's the longest room. So they all met there at noon. They assembled in the long room. And after a few minutes, Washington entered the room, already emotional, which in turn made everybody else in the room emotional. The men sat and they shared a, quote, slight refreshment in almost breathless silence. The most thorough retelling of the event is by Colonel Benjamin Talmadge, who wrote a detailed description in his memoirs. He said that General Washington filled his glass with wine, and then he turned to his officers, and he said, quote, With a heart full of love and gratitude, I now take leave of you. I most devoutly wish that your latter days may be as prosperous and happy as your former ones have been glorious and honorable. And then once everybody has sipped some wine, Washington continues, I cannot come to each of you, but shall feel obliged if each of you will come and take me by the hand. You can just imagine this, Greg. It's so dramatic. General Knox, being nearest to him, turned to the commander-in-chief, who, suffused in tears, was incapable of utterance, but grasped his hand when they embraced each other in silence. And in the same manner then, all of the other generals in the room approached Washington and they took him by the hand and they embraced him. This is me talking now, not, okay. not Talmadge. I do understand the gravity of the situation. I mean, they had done nothing less but actually win a country from the most powerful foreign power in the world. And there were those who thought at the end of the war that actually Washington should basically run a military dictatorship. I mean, he could just run military rule. He was that popular. And instead he had decided that he was going to go into retirement instead and let the young country, you know, function on a democracy. So this was a really big moment for the country to see their commander-in-chief resign all of his powers like this. The officers then escorted Washington to Whitehall Wharf, where he boarded a barge that took him off uh, to Paulus Hook, which we now call Jersey City, and from there on to Annapolis, where he resigned before the Continental Congress, which was then in session. So it was really a dramatic day for the young nation and for France's Tavern. And this event is really, I think, the reason, the main reason that France's Tavern is still with, with oh, us today. Absolutely. Because it gives it such a historical significance. It was such an important bookend to the war that later when people started preserving and understanding history and deciding, well, you know what, we need to save every part of this original battle. That's what France, Francis was still there and that's why it was saved. And Washington went off to retire in Mount Vernon, not knowing, of course, that six years later, he would not only be back in the public eye, but he'd be back in New York City with a very big new title. By the way, I just want to mention that in 1785, just two years after this very dramatic event, Francis did succeed in actually selling his tavern. And he had tried to retire himself, but he hadn't been able to do it. So he succeeded in 1785, but not before leasing it to the government. The, the tavern takes on a new chapter, <laughs> um, as literally as a part of the brand new federal government. It's a building 
that would house many of the brand new departments that had never existed before. So if, if you kind of like wrap your head around that, right. it's kind of a remarkable thing. And I actually sort of have to laugh a little bit because it takes on such an important role. And it's a place with, a, with an operating bar. Right. <laughs> now, Federal Hall... You know, at the corner of Broad Street and Wall Street, this was the old city hall. It was already overpacked with so many municipal offices of the federal, state, and local government. I mean, there were even King's College classes that were being taught here. It was filled with activity, and there were so few structures of a certain size to be able to house official business. And keep in mind, this is post-war New York, so it's still in a little bit of a shambles. By this time in 1785, the United States, uh, such as it was at the time, was being governed by the Articles of Confederation. The Constitution wouldn't arrive and wouldn't be ratified until 1788. When Francis sold the tavern, he actually sold it to this government that was being operated by the Articles of Confederation. They moved some of their early departments into the tavern uh, and set up some offices here. For instance, a prototype version, an early version of the, of the State Department, the Department of Foreign Affairs, moved in. It was led by John Jay, who, of course, came here in his earlier years every Saturday to drink and carouse with friends. I bet that many people who came to work here at France's had the same kind of experience with the place. Jay had two assistants and, of course, like many representatives in other countries, they hold up in two small rooms here, darting about his office up and down the stairs and whatnot. You know, this is also the period that he was working on articles that would be later compiled to make the Federalist Papers. So he was certainly working on some of those here at the time. You know, he would bump elbows with other office holders here. For instance, the Department of War was also here during this time, led by Henry Knox, i.e. Fort, Fort Knox. Knox. Exactly. Sure. Um, he also had rooms here. Now, in April of 1789, with the Constitution ratified, a new federal government moves into Federal Hall and moves into New York. It would remain here until the end of 1790. So for these two years, New York is the center of federal government. You know, I always say, like, it moves here, but in fact, it kind of is already here. It's just that this new version, a new improved version, is formed and starts here. So the new government comes in with the first elected leader, George Washington, comes back to New York, famously sworn in on that second floor balcony of a federal hall, of course. They only add more people into this overcrowded <laughs> federal hall, so it's crazy. Francis continues to be used as a government building. Now, Knox continued with the brand new government to be the official, the head of the Department of War. John Jay, however, did not remain with the State Department he, because, of course, he had another job as the very first Chief Justice of the brand spanking new Supreme Court. I should mention an early version of the Department of the Treasury had, had moved in here, but in 1789, the new head of that Department of Treasury also moved his office in here. And wouldn't you know, it's Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> By 1791, of course, they had moved out. And, I mean, let's say for the most part that the true glory days of Francis Tavern would now be behind it. But it would still be an operating and functioning tavern and hotel for many, many decades. Yes, it would. And we should just mention that when the government moved to Philadelphia in 1790, Samuel moved as well. And 
he worked with Washington at what was basically the first White House until 1794, uh, where he served as a steward and then finally opened up his own restaurant in Philly called the Golden Tun Tavern, which was a favorite spot of diplomats and VIPs and mm-hmm. such. And he died in 1795, just a year after leaving Washington, in Philadelphia at the age of 72 and was buried in an unmarked grave in St. Peter's Episcopal Church Cemetery in Philadelphia. We think so, age 72. <laughs> it could be. Right. It's Either around 72 the, or 85. Now, what happened at the tavern during the 19th century? There were some sort of last gasps of, of great dinners. On July 4th, 1804, there was a dinner thrown by the Society of the Cincinnati, at which, Greg, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Byrd dined together. Daggers shot across the dining room table. (laughs) But now New York in the 19th century was a really fascinating place, of course, to be because the Erie Canal opened in 1825. We had just mentioned DeWitt Clinton. So the city was also now the base for shipping goods off to the country's ever-expanding westward region. This event caused industry to really boom and the population to explode and the merchant class to become wealthier and really the city to really develop. Now, around France's tavern down by the ports, it was mostly workshops and wholesalers and warehouses and such. And Pearl Street was busy with dry goods and hardware sellers. So you can just imagine the hustle and the bustle of people doing business coming in on ships. But throughout the 1800s, the tavern was serving mostly as a boarding house. So businessmen coming over on the ships were also mixing with people who just, you know, worked in the area and they lived upstairs in the different rooms. So there were boarders and such. And they could still eat downstairs and there was a bar, but it was mostly about sleeping. And it would stay like this for decades and decades, like throughout the entire 19th century. Exactly. I think it had more success in the early 19th century because by the 1840s, there were larger boarding houses that were opening. Like there was a Pearl Street house, which had 200 guest rooms. Mm -hmm. We're also talking about the beginning of hotel culture. During the second half of the 19th century, you know, the city was moving uptown. People were less likely to go out at night at establishments downtown. So places like Francis Tavern would suffer. And on top of all of this, Greg, there were also big fires, fires not just in the city, but fires in the tavern Mm -hmm. in 1832, 1837, and 1852. And the amazing part is the actual, like, the great fire of 1835, like, the big fire that happened in New York in the 19th century— Missed the Not tavern. a big deal for Francis Right. Tavern. That's so interesting. So they had their own personal fires. They had fires. And each time that there was a fire, they did renovations and remodeling. They even added floors to it. They added two more floors to the top. They flattened the roof. And so the top floors has 13 bedrooms, each with a toilet. When you see a photo of what this place looked like in the, the late 19th century, it looks like any kind of 100-year-old apartment building in the East Village. It's a five-story building. It doesn't really look anything like it does today. Not at all. And the first floor, here's a picture of it. Oh, I'll show you right is. here. There's yeah. an awning that stretched on the first floor, like around the corner, this thing that hung over the sidewalk. And yeah, I mean, it just looks like a normal square building. It doesn't have that sort of colonial look to it. How did it, Not so how at did all. It, how did it get that look? Well, around the 100th anniversary, anniversary of Washington's farewell. So December 4th, 1883, there was a dinner thrown to commemorate the event by the Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York. This was the beginning of the effort to restore the building. I think that people around this time, because it was the centennial, were starting to think 
about you know what their historical monuments were, what their remnants were of another era. And they were seeing that the city was going through explosive growth and that there was less and less that was left behind mm-hmm. to remind them of their history. So there were these groups that started up, like the Sons of the Revolution, the Daughters of the Revolution. It parallels some of the changes that were happening we mentioned in the Gracie Mansion podcast, where organizations would form to save these particular structures that harken back to an earlier day. Exactly. And from 1894 on, the Daughters of the American Revolution had been trying to buy and preserve the building. And in 1900, they found that the building was going to be demolished to make room for a much bigger building. And and the owners were not interested in selling to the Daughters of the American Revolution. So the city actually stepped in in 1903 and proclaimed the building through eminent domain a, quote, city park. And the next year, 1904, the owners backed off and sold the building to the Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York, who wanted to restore it to its original state and operate a museum and a restaurant inside. So once the Sons had bought the building, then the city removed the park designation, and there we had it, a building preserved, which was a huge relief. And the next year, 1905, they hired uh, William Mercero, who was an architect, to restore the building, and he went through this rather elaborate process of removing bricks, removing those two top floors, and finding by looking at the different kinds of bricks, you know, where this, the original roof would have been, at what angle and how high it would have been. And this was a new field of preservation with an eye to historical accuracy. There's been a lot of controversy, though, that his, that, I mean, it, although it certainly looks colonial, that it's, certain elements don't exactly look like anything that was ever seen at Francis Tavern. Well, so he did look at documents, whatever Mm -hmm. images there were available to him, but there were actually not very many images. There were some newspaper reports about what it looked like. For areas where details were lacking, he actually based some of his elements, like, say, the staircase when you walk in, on designs that he found in other Delancey family buildings, Mm. like up in the Hudson Valley. So... Yeah, some of it's just sort of historical recreation. Conjecture. And in 1907, they opened the museum on December 4th, which was actually the 124th anniversary of Washington's farewell meal. Now, in order to turn this into a museum and restaurant of, you know, honored historical value, they had to kick out the people who were living there. Like, there was a hotel. It was still like a, a lodging house. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, details, details. I just found this funny article from the New York Times from 1904 with its curious headline, May Hide Dark Secrets of Francis Tavern, Proprietor Likely to Conceal Noisome Dungeon. <gasps> Apparently, now I have not seen any other references to this. So it could be a little journalism exaggeration. It could have been the people who lived there trying to play a prank on the journalist and maybe in a way to like sabotage the the proceedings. But they claimed that there was a prison downstairs where prisoners were kept at France's tavern during the Revolutionary War. A quote from the article, the proprietor of the hotel was named, his last name was Glinton Camp. So he opened this door. Glinton Camp struck a light and invited the little company to join him downstairs. The room underneath was perhaps 15 feet long and not more than three in width. Through the mole on the walls, the old brick could be distinguished and everywhere was unmistakable sign of great age. Along the further side of the room, opposite the entrance, were the, quote, cells, four in number. Partitions between them were of brick and were fully two feet in thickness. 
Old rusty chains still hung suspended from the rear wall, bearing mute testimony to the German statement that, quote, here were the prisoners kept chained to the walls till they were dead. Unquote. Wow. Now, this is according to an article from 1904, but I have not seen any other evidence to the fact that there was a prison downstairs. But it might be something to ask a curator while you're there right. to see if you can see the prison rooms. Or a listener who wishes to debunk this story that you're Ooh, forcing on us. <laughs> Not a lot to say about the modern history. In the, in the 1960s, uh, France has moved into some of the surrounding buildings. They expanded, and today they are in some of those buildings still. In fact, that's where if you have a, a drink today, you'll most likely have it in one of the surrounding buildings. In 1965, it was designated a New York City landmark. Now, a very tragic and, frankly, weird thing happens at France's in the 70s. It's an odd way to end the history, but I, it, has to be, it has to be discussed because it's very unusual. In January 24, 1975, France's tavern was the site of a terrorist attack. This is kind of a forgotten chapter in, in its history almost. It was during lunchtime on January 24th, a bomb that used a propane tank canister exploded at one of the exit doors. Four people were killed from this explosion, and over 50 others were injured. Even more bizarre is the culprit of this particular attack. It was a Puerto Rican national group whose initials went by. It was FALN. Um, they had left a note at the phone booth outside claiming responsibility, and their reasoning for this was, was retaliation for some U.S. government action against Puerto Rican citizens. They alleged that some, there was some bloodshed that the U.S. had caused, so this was retaliation for that. No one was ever caught, and no one was prosecuted for this attack. The FALN actually had several small bomb attacks throughout the city throughout the late 70s and early 80s, including one at LaGuardia Airport and one in Harlem. Thankfully, life at Francis Tavern today is a lot more jovial, peaceful, friendly, calm place. The, the, the first floor, there's that lounge restaurant area. It's called Porter House. It's a, I believe it was an Irish-owned operation that they now moved in. It's called Porter House. It's a really nice So place. when you walk in the door, it's to your left. Right. Now, you, can, you walk up to the second floor, and that's where the museum is. You pay your entrance fee. To your left is, of course, the famous long room. That's the room that you're there for. And there's a little uh, – it's set up as if – you know, people have just were working in the 1780s. There's like a quill pen. It looks as if the officers have just walked out escorting Washington <laughs> down to the wharf. And, and you even see the bar. <laughs> yeah, right to your left. It's incredible. There's another dining room there called the Clinton Dining Room, named for George Clinton. And there's another room where you can sit and watch a video, and there's more historical displays. The third floor has a series of different galleries, paintings. Uh, there's a lot of cabinets that are actually related to the sons of the revolution, to the right. people who actually put it all together. But it's definitely worth your time if you are in New York to go to, to, go to France's Tavern. I hope you enjoyed this journey into the past, into the revolutionary past of Francis Tavern, and of course our own in this special patriotic-themed rebroadcast. Now I have to say, in this particular show, we didn't completely provide a proper context for the story of Samuel Francis. He's a bit of an enigma, as you heard, a bit of a mystery. The question of his race, for instance, has fascinated historians for almost 200 years. Why do people care so much? It speaks to the complexity of colonial life. 
especially when you consider that New York during this period was a vital link in the transatlantic slave trade. According to the New York Historical Society, quote, as many as 20% of colonial New Yorkers were enslaved Africans. New York ship captains and merchants bought and sold slaves along the coast of Africa and in the taverns of their own city. Almost every businessman in 18th century New York had a stake at one time or another in the traffic in human beings, unquote. So with these facts in mind, who really worked at Francis Tavern in the 1760s and 1770s? Now, from the museum's website, quote, Francis' household consisted of a minimum of 14 people. Francis and his wife, two sons, five daughters, none of which were named Phoebe, several indentured servants and enslaved persons of African descent, a hired maid, and a waiter, unquote. The everyday life of a colonial tavern is almost impossible to imagine today because it was truly multifunctional, presiding as both a restaurant, saloon, coffee house, boarding house, and hotel in an era and a place where these things did not traditionally exist. Francis was, of course, not the only game in town, either. The King's Arms Tavern, near Trinity Church on Broadway, had been open since 1696 and is listed in many places as the very first coffee house in New York. Now, closer in distance to Francis, you'll find the remains of another old tavern. Just a few yards north of Francis, you'll find ruins underfoot, the remains of Lovelace's Tavern. And close by that, you'll also see an outline embedded in the pavement for yet another famous tavern, the Stadthaus. The Stadthaus was the center of New Amsterdam's civic life, its municipal structure, its meeting hall, its sturdy town center. It was built as a tavern in 1641. Peter Stuyvesant transformed it into the young settlement's city hall but kept it as a place to serve food and alcohol. When the British took over the colony in 1664, this building kept its place of importance. Underscoring this position was a building that happened to be just to its southwest corner that was erected in 1670, a tavern or an inn owned by the governor of New York, Colonel Francis Lovelace. Francis was, let's just say, in good with the Duke of York during his territorial expansion of the New World, and he was installed in 1668 as the second governor of the newly acquired New York, after the first governor, a man named Richard Nichols, was recalled back to England. Built right next door to the aging Stadthaus, Lovelace's Tavern may have always been conceived as a second-tier administration building and seemed to offer the same services as the larger building. It's sometimes referred to even as the King's House. In fact, the tavern connected right into municipal chambers, so it was a, effectively an annex. Even so, the halls of the tavern would be illuminated until late at night with revelers drinking wine and smoking their pipes. 
Now, Lovelace is an important figure in early colonial New York history. He inaugurated the first postal service to Boston, for instance. Its first route would become the basis of so many major thoroughfares today, most notably the Bowery. He also strengthened New York as a merchant hub, forcing farmers from surrounding areas to funnel their product through the city and giving New York merchants a virtual monopoly of posts along the entire Hudson River. His tavern here also played host to some of the most prominent leaders in town. Perhaps even old Stuyvesant himself dragged his peg leg along the floors here at Lovelace's Tavern, he did, after all, live on a large farm just north of the city and was alive and in New York during the tavern's first two years of operation. Lovelace, unfortunately, though, would be dead in a few years. Now, during this very short period, when the Dutch actually regained control of New York from August of 1673 to December of 1674, Lovelace was at that time recalled to England and squarely blamed for his loss to the Dutch. Lovelace was thrown into the Tower of London and died in 1675. But the tavern bearing his name lived on, eventually incorporating nearly all official New York business for a short time in 1697, when the whole thing was deemed just too decrepit to continue to do official business in. And of course, New York would get a new city hall building in the year 1700. That, of course, would become the building we would know as Federal Hall. Lovelace's tavern burnt down in the year 1706, and the land was reallotted to the growing merchant district. But all these years later, parts of it are still there under the ground. So, so go take a gander at Lovelace's Tavern after your trip back in time inside Franz's Tavern. For more information, please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where there'll be all sorts of images of thrilling tavern history and uh, many pictures of Francis Tavern throughout the years, including that time when it was just a boarding house. And of course, for even more history, go visit the website of Francis Tavern itself. That's FrancisTavernMuseum.org. Now, they have a newish exhibition there when you visit um, on the building's history called A Monument to Memory, 300 Years of Living History. In addition, they also have a new podcast called Tavern Talks for even more tavern history. And lastly, it's just exciting to see all these places back up and running again and seeing our city slowly but surely come back to life. We would like to thank all of those who support us on Patreon.com, where for a small donation, you are helping keep the show up and running. And uh, we also give you some exclusive audio. So there's all sorts of stuff for you to explore over there at Patreon.com slash Boys. And pretty soon, Tom and I will be recording a new episode of the Bowery Boys Movie Club. And it is a movie that has been chosen by those on Patreon. So we're taking your number one choice, and that will be our next show. And that's all I'm going to say about that. So anyway, thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not.
Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.